Hi, everyone. This is Melissa Wright. I am here guest hosting the ASES podcast on behalf of your normal hosts, Pete Chalmers and Rachel Frank. And this is a special episode where we have a little bit of a takeover from the Political Advocacy Committee. And so we have two great guests on tonight to talk to us all a little bit more about political advocacy and its role in the ASES. So I really want to thank uh, Dr. Jerry Williams and Dr. Scott Steinman for being on here with us tonight. Uh, welcome both of you to the podcast. Thank you. All right, so let's just go ahead and dive on in. Uh, the first thing that I wanted to just talk to you guys about was why you both got involved in political advocacy and the political advocacy committee of the ASES in the first place. Go ahead, Scott. I was just going to say, uh, uh, this sort of, for me, it started actually back when I was in uh, Minnesota. I got involved with the state society. I think that's really where things start. You really need to be, if you can, involved with your state orthopedic society. And I was on the board, and then I became president of the Minnesota Orthopedic Society. And I realized how important uh, advocacy is. We had scope of practice issues that came up when I was on board, when I was a president. And then I was part of the BOC, and I was really surprised, actually, the first time I went to the first uh, NOLC meeting or the first BOC meeting, I realized these guys are a key part of our organization. We do a lot, of, I've done mainly educational stuff ones at the Mayo Clinic, and now I'm actually meeting and talking about what's good for our patients, good for our, our profession, and I realized going onto the Hill uh, and advocating for our orthopedic patients and the NOC gets maybe 300 to 400 doctors to show up uh, out of you know over 22,000 orthopedic surgeons in the United States. So I think that that really taught me the importance of um, being at the table because you're, you're not at the table, as I say, you're on the menu. Uh, and then uh, since then, uh, when I came came down here to, to Tennessee and, and just being involved in ASES, I, I was always uh, um, interested in working with advocacy and uh, Javier uh, recommended that I get involved in the uh, committee itself. And so now I'm co-chair and uh, Ted Sligo's done a fantastic job. Uh, he just rolled off as being chair and Brad Bushnell is the chair of that committee now. We have about over 15 members, a very, very diverse membership, Melissa, as you know, and uh, that's kind of where I am now. So thank you. So for me, it was actually totally an accident. Uh, what Scott says about starting advocacy at the state level is really true. Um, and it was, as I said, a complete accident. I was involved in the board of the Pennsylvania Orthopedic Society. And there was an attempt uh, at the state level to um, write a workman's compensation bill that would have had very negative effects um, on orthopedic surgeons. So at the time, the Pennsylvania Orthopedic Society didn't even have a PAC. It was just a it was just a state orthopedic society, and we went to Harrisburg to speak to one of the people in uh, you know in, in uh, state Congress about this bill and what we thought was wrong with it and what needed to change. And so we got to the congressperson's office, um, and basically it became clear to us that in order to speak to the congressman, we needed to have a check. And we didn't. So we wound up talking to the aide. Uh, we figured out that we'd get a check, come back the second time and see if we could talk to the congressperson. And that's exactly what happened. So <sighs> it became very clear to me 
that if you don't get involved with advocacy, and you know, the check doesn't buy you anything except for um, an audience. You know, you, you don't necessarily buy a direct result, but you don't you don't get to see the people who make these bills and make these laws without supporting their um, ability to get reelected because it's very expensive to get elected to public office in this country. So that's Absolutely. how I became involved in advocacy. Um, and I realized how important it was. Um, and I went on to um, become president of the POS. Um, and then th through my work at the academy, it became apparent to me that for really from my perspective, state advocacy occurs with the Pennsylvania Orthopedic Society and other state societies. And federal advocacy happens at the federal level, usually through the academy. And then when the shoulder and elbow group, uh, American shoulder and elbow surgeons decided uh, that they wanted to get involved in advocacy, I think they made a very wise decision um, to hitch their wagon to the academy because the AOS really does federal advocacy better than anybody. There's nobody that does it anywhere close as good as the academy. And so I'm, I'm very happy that the ASS is sort of partnered with the academy to be involved in national advocacy. And what I've just learned, as Scott basically said, um, you know, the old story about you're either um, at the table or on the menu uh, is absolutely true. Um, and it's just been crazy to me to realize how little people in our educated elected bodies know about medicine and the practice of orthopedic care. Uh, and yeah. really advocacy is all about making sure that the people who have the ability to influence laws and bills understand what the effect of those things are on orthopedic patients. Um, and that, that's really the focus. Absolutely. Um, so for somebody who, you know, started thinking, hey, this this seems important. I'm, you know, looking at my patients and how care is being provided and I want to get involved and make a change. You know, what what would your kind of advice be from a, just a really actionable level of like, what should those those young orthopedic surgeons do? I was going to say one one thing is uh, just to get involved uh, both in your society itself. Most of the orthopedic societies, your hip surgeon, certainly shoulder and elbow, they have an advocacy uh, route. And I think back to uh, when we get uh, requests from donations to our colleges and universities we've gone to, it's important to start out early uh, by notifying those folks that just graduated or just became candidate members of, say, the Shoulder Elbow Society and get them used to donating uh, at an early level, a small amount, um, but just to, to get that practice uh, practice going. And if you look back historically, the academy was started, I guess, in the 30s, but we didn't have a, uh, the association was formed, I think, in 97, 98. We didn't have a PAC uh, for the academy until, uh, I think, 1999. And uh, I think the first couple of years, all we gave was like $250,000 to candidates. And this past year, uh, I got an email from um, Brittany Starr. We, 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 um, we had... 3.3 million that we've put uh, in receipts, and we gave out 2.1 million uh, to over, I think over 250 congressional candidates. So, just look in the past 20, 23 years, what we've done, uh, starting a pack uh, at the National Academy, as, as Jerry said. I think we need to be ortho ortho partisan, and you know we talked about oh this is bipartisan, but certainly certainly this year it's been even 
50-50 split uh, between Democratic and Republican candidates that we've supported. And it's been different in other years, but you know, we look at those candidates that, that we can support, that support our mission, support our patient's mission. And I think that's a, that's a real goal to, to um, as Jerry says, to use the academy as a vehicle for the Shoal and Elvis Society. Uh, Jerry said, you need that check to get in the door. 2.1 million is a lot. Well, the other thing is that I learned um, in the time that I was with the academy leadership, our office, the academy office does such a good job of going to the Hill that there wasn't a single congressperson whose office we entered that didn't know who we were when we walked in. They knew the first and last names of our lobbyists. Um, it was, we didn't have to make any introduction. They know who we were, they knew why we were there, they knew what we were going to say. Um, and you can't really put, you can't put a dollar amount on that. That, that recognition is extremely important. But to your question, you know, I, I, I think that when I look at the way that I got involved, um, I really do think that the, the simplest pathway and the most effective pathway, if you want to get involved other than financially, is through your state society. And if you're really active in your state society, you will rise up through the board of counselors and the AOS and become active in the AOS advocacy effort and the ASES advocacy effort just by being there. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that Scott says that I just can't overemphasize, um, just to give an example, and I, I only know the academy numbers. I don't know the ASES numbers, but they can't be any better than the academies, maybe a little worse. If you look at the percentage of academy members that make a contribution to the academy packets, around 35%, maybe even a little less. And the average contribution is around $300. Um, if, and that, that's what it was when I was involved. Maybe it's a little more now, but I doubt it. If you look at the trial lawyers, their percent uh, participation is 99.9. .9, wow. And they, their average contribution is $1,000. So whenever I used to go around to the state societies and I talk to people at ASCS who complain a little bit about having to pay people to do stuff uh, and they feel bad about it, what, what I tell them, and they don't feel like they get anything out of it, what I tell them is you need to spend about five times as much. So we, we need to not spend less. We need to have more of our members spend significantly more. Uh, if we want to compete with the trial lawyers and the American Hospital Association or other people like that, the people that we're competing against um, to try to influence things in Washington, D.C., spend way more than we spend. Um, and there's a reason why uh, when the Affordable Care Act was passed, there wasn't a single word in it about malpractice reform. Not a word. The fact that the trial lawyers, 99% of them, contribute to a thousand dollars and the fact that there was not a word of malpractice reform in the affordable care act are related directly and if we want to have an effect we need to have people get involved uh, and donate their time at a state level and they're just yeah. at their specialty society and at the academy but you also need to, to uh, let your money speak where your mouth is it's just important and you know i don't like any better any, any better than anybody else does <laughs> But the and fact one of the, that it's the way it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And one of the reasons, you know, I think we wanted to have this episode tonight is to, you know, help our membership understand a little bit more about, you know, what the advocacy committee does and, you know, where where those donations are going and, and what makes such a difference for our membership and for our patients. And I know one thing you you alluded to was just how 
when you were going, you know, to the Hill with the Academy and, you know, those lobbyists, they're known and they're really effective at their job because that's what they do full time. And um, I was wondering if you guys could talk a little bit more about maybe some of your experiences uh, going to the Hill and how that's been kind of an important, um, you know, advocacy learning opportunity and, you know, just, just thing for you to, to be able to give back and do you know, it's something our political advocacy committee does. We go down to the NOLC. I think I think it's a, it's important, as Jerry was saying earlier, is that there are literally thousands of pack of packs out there, and if we went up the hill, just try to do it our own as a show and Elvis society, they just literally don't have time for, for all these packs to, to come through. Yeah. And uh, I think the trial lawyers almost double what they give close to six million dollars a year. And, but we have to compliment ourselves. The, the Academy's done a really good job. We're anesthesiologists give more than we do. Um, but we're the second, the AMA gives less than we do. We, we give more wow. than the AMA. And I, I think it's important to, to under, understand that. Um, and that, that gets your foot, uh, your, your foot in, in, in the door. So I think that's a, that's a key thing. Personally, when I've uh, been on the Hill, I think the key thing Obviously, when I was in Minnesota with the Minnesota delegation here in Tennessee, uh, I have my uh, Congressman Chuck Fleischman's uh, cell phone number, chat with him on the phone. And so when I met with him, that was the best reception. You know, I've given to his campaign and, you know, each of us on the on the delegation met with our own congressmen within Tennessee. And that's how it goes. And, if you've given to them and they know you have, uh, they give you the time of day, as, as Jerry said. You, these guys are always running for office every two years, obviously. And so they need support so they can you know, help you out. Uh, these pro these um, issues take a couple of years to get going and voted on. So um, it's not just, you know, you have to pay to talk to them. It's just, it's just how it goes. And I think that's a very important aspect. So I'll give you a couple of stories about um, my involvement. The the first one is pretty interesting. So it was this guy was actually a congressperson in my district that I didn't really know, um, but I eventually got in touch with him. He went to the same college I did, um, and I did contribute to his uh, uh, election campaign. But the point I'm trying to make is the relationship that I had with him because we went to the same college. We sort of knew each other. It's those relationships that may or may not be uh, founded on money. They might be founded on just the fact that your kids played in the same sports together or whatever. Those kind yeah. of relationships are really important. So I'll give you an example. Uh, I got a phone call from him from the, from the floor of the House of Representatives. They were getting ready to vote on a bill that had something to do with health care. And he asked me, how should I vote? Wow. I told him. And he did. So Pretty the bottom line is relationships are really important. Sometimes they're more important than money. So one yeah. of the things that these that young people can do is get to know your Congress people, get to know the people who on not only on the state level, but the national level, get, have relationships with them, go over to their house for cocktails or whatever. Uh, you have a much better uh, chance of influencing their thought process if you actually have a personal relationship with them. So the second story I'll tell you just has to do with um, if you are going to get involved in an organized way on the Hill with regard to advocacy, you have to make sure what your message is 
and you have to be you have to be persistent enough and have enough gumption to actually make it and i give you an example so we went to the hill and it was when I, you guys may remember this but the i, I forget i think it was ccjr was a, was the original um letters for it but it had to be changed because seth greenwald uh told them they couldn't use ccjr it was the first uh, bundled payments initiative for joint replacements that the government was mm -hmm. going to run through medicare um, and i forget what they changed it to but it was originally ccjr and in the beginning the hospitals were the only people that could own the bundles so when we went up to talk to people on the hill it was divided about who would talk about what we had various issues and my issue was to make the argument as to why they ought to consider large practices that have the ability to control the bundle to have the bundle. So we went to Nancy Pelosi's office and we met with her health policy advisor who had been in Washington, D.C. for 35 years wow. uh, working for some politician or another. So he clearly was never in the real world. And I made this argument that physicians practices make a lot of the decisions for what's spent and we should have control of the bundle. And he said to a group of orthopedic surgeons and their lobbyists, you know, everybody wants the bundle. You guys are here today talking about the bundle. The nursing homes were here yesterday. Last week, the hospitals were here. Everybody wants the bundle. Somebody's got to look out for the patient. And I looked at the guy and I said, you know, I, as I understand it, the only group that you just, of all the groups that you just mentioned, the only group that took a Hippocratic oath to take care of the patient is sitting in this room, okay? We're a bunch of orthopedic surgeons. We've been taking care of patients for thousands of years. We'll take care of them for thousands more. We're not here about who's going to look out for the patient. We're here to talk about the money. And the bottom line is that changed the entire tone of the discussion. Yeah. He understood that we understood the issue. We weren't there to banny about with him. We were very serious. And we had something to ask for him. And sometimes you got to do that. When we left that room, I wasn't sure I did the right thing. I said, I said to Catherine Boudreaux at the time, she's been, she's now married. I said, was I over the top? Did I, was I, did I, what I, did I do more than I should? She said they needed to hear it. And yeah. so the point I'm trying to make is when you go to advocate, you do need to make your argument. You know, you're not there to make friends. Sure. You're there to make your argument. And if they give you the floor to make it, make it. Um, when we go to the Hill, I, I remember, um, he took care of a, one of my patients when I was in the Navy, was a, was a retired submarine admiral. And he says, you know, leadership, you know, if you go to your men, don't go to them with more than three things because it's hard to keep everything straight. And it's only when we go to the Hill, it's usually three things that we want to, and the ask, the ask when you meet with your, your congressman, not 10 things. And I think that's a, each of these has a one pager, so we just have notes on it. So. That's one thing that, that the Office of uh, Government Relations and the Advocacy Council, Doug Lundy's done a great job there. Is There's no surprise when, when we go to the NLSC, it's been vetted about what issues we want to bring. There's a lot of issues that we obviously have in our case, but it's well vetted. It's not a surprise uh, when we meet and before we go to the Hill of the, the issues that we're going to discuss. I think the, the Academy does a great job, or the Association does a great job of that. Yeah, one of the things I've been impressed by as I've learned so much being on the political advocacy committee is just how much is going on behind the scenes. You know, you guys have both talked about your trips to the Hill and these moments where, you know, there's always people doing this for us as people who maybe haven't been involved before. And when you start to learn that, you know, so many of our, you know, your colleagues are putting in their time, their energy to make this kind of stuff happen, it, does, it, doesn't, it doesn't just happen magically where we're able to, you know, protect some of our 
reimbursements, patient care, all that sort of thing. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the kind of current issues um, that you guys see as, you know, really particularly critical to orthopedic surgeons and specifically shoulder and elbow surgeons that, you know, the Academy and the ASES Political Advocacy Committee have kind of have their eyes on right now. What do you guys see as, you know, you know, we would, we don't want to go more than three, like, you know, the top one or two things that we as surgeons should be caring about right now from an advocacy standpoint and um, kind of thinking about and staying ahead of. I think from my perspective, uh, the ones that I've heard most of, the, the hot ones, are this um, pre-certification issue with orthopedics, as you probably know, up until no. relatively recently, uh, you didn't have to pre-certify orthopedic procedures. Um, you know, you, you didn't have to get permission from a third party about whether or not you might get paid for doing what you do. Um, and it's become sort of a barrier, at least in many people's experience, between the doctor and the patient trying to get the patient what they actually need. And um, I know that the Academy has been uh, pretty vocal uh, on Capitol Hill about getting some relief in that regard. Um, and there's word that I, I, I think there's some, I think there is a sympathetic ear uh, on some, to some people on the, on, the, on the Hill to that particular issue. The second one, which I, I'm not sure we're going to win, uh, you know, Scott and I are both old enough to remember um, the correction that was supposed to happen to reimbursement for physicians because of the uh, formula that was used to calculate it. And they kept kicking the correction down the road year after year after year. And they, it, we just got used to them. We'd come up to where we were supposed to get a certain percentage reimbursement cut. We'd make a lot of noise and they would say, okay, and kick it down the road another few years. This is the first time that they didn't kick it all the way down the road. Um, they didn't take away the re as much reimbursement as they threatened they were going to, but for the first time in a very long time, they dropped some. So um, I think that's another issue. We may not win it completely, but I think we need to try to stop it um, where it is now. Um, I think that's a second issue. Scott, can you think of any others? Yeah, I was going to say, um... It's really eye-opening when you, I mean, we are talking about the, the, the conversion factor uh, for Medicare reimbursement, and that was uh, that was dropped last year. Last year, we, you know, it's always in December. We we actually had about a two, I think a two and a half percent cut, cut, not not advancement, and we have inflation going on, and the conversion factor is four and a half percent this year, plus the four percent pay-as-you-go uh, part. So we're looking at uh, eight and a half percent cut that was going to come down to not just orthopedics, but all, all medicine, all physicians. And, you know, at the last minute that that got changed, the pay, pay as you go got dropped and we have about a 2% cut. So that's two years in a row, at least historically. And the pay as you go is, is kind of, kind of hard to understand. It only came in in the 1990s, as, as I recall, and every several years it gets dropped and Congress says, oh, no, we're not going to do that. But how it's supposed to work is if you increase entitlement in one area, it has to go down another. It has to be like um, zero sum. And so if you increase whatever area you increase it in, then it has to be taken out of other programs. And uh, that's back in, but, but it was kicked down the road, as Jerry said, uh, for a while. So, But if you look at the hospitals, both inpatient, outpatient, skilled nursing facilities, hospices, they have an adjustment for inflation that we don't have. It's an update that happens automatically every year. And um, 
the hospitals have had about a 60% rise over the past couple of decades. And whereas we, over the past two decades, have had essentially adjusted for inflation about 20% cut of payments, which is not insignificant to physicians across the board. So as Sherry was saying, I think, I think we, like, why did the physicians get left out of an automatic update that all the other areas that receive Medicare dollars get adjusted for inflation? So that needs a, needs a serious looking at, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll do that. Other issues, uh, physician ownership in hospitals, um, medical liability, that's been off the table for a while. As Jerry said, it wasn't part of the ACA. Prior, prior authorization, some things that some state societies, Texas, has started a, like a gold card program where they're about to start. Whereas if almost, if over 90% of the time when you ask for imaging or, or the surgery you're gonna do, it gets approved, well then you get a gold card and, and, and you get a sort of a fast pass to get these things approved. And again, that's at the state society level, but uh, the, the prior authorization has just been Medicare advantage at the federal level, but uh, we still need to fight for that from the state society. If if you look at the uh, consolidation of the insurance industry, you know the blues always have a whole bunch of different names for their individual parts, but they really roll up into the blues. It, I mean, nationwide there's something like five insurance companies, and if these five insurance companies hire third parties to do the prior authorization, uh, which basically means they wash their hands of it, uh, it becomes a federal issue. And every one of these things needs to be couched from the standpoint of how it affects patients' access to care and patients' quality of care. Absolutely. I think that's, you know, really what all of this is about. It's about us being able to provide adequate care for the patients. And when you look at these these cuts and stuff, you know, that's, that impacts how people are able to provide care as well because private practices can't stay open, things like that. Obviously, these are big issues. Um, and the political advocacy committee of the ASES is, you know, works with the academy, and you know, everyone's trying to kind of stay on top of it and and keep these things from going the wrong direction. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on on how beyond the the you know getting involved and making forming relationships and you know contributing financially? Do you guys have any thoughts on you know what we as surgeons should be doing to try and stop some of these changes or get things going in the right direction? I think one area that uh, that is helpful, they, not many orthopedic surgeons are members of the, the AMA. I think it's less than 20%, I think for sure. But we've signed on to a statement that the AMA has put together and, and sent to Congress. I think, I think it's important. Um, a couple of things, they asking for the annual update for inflation, which we don't have as, as physicians. And then to re revise that whole pay-as-you-go budget uh, neutrality um, to allow for appropriate spending. If there's things that are new that have been proven to be beneficial to patients and they cost a bit more, well, we should we should provide for that. And the other thing that 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 I I've learned is that uh, we pass legislation, but um, it's the agencies that write the rules. And so when we go to speak with our congressman or, or, or go, to, go to the Hill, I have to remember that we can pass legislation, but then non-elected bureaucrats are the ones that actually write the rules at CMS. They interpret the legislation. That, that was eye-opening to me. 
And that's hard yeah. to do because these are un unelected people. But one thing that the AMA is, is encouraged, and I think we should do, is, is collaboration with other societies uh, and to encourage in the marketplace collaboration, competition, patient choice. But there's sort of this creeping sense, at least among the bureaucrats, of consolidation. And I don't think consolidation is, you know, that's sort of moving toward a one-payer system, one universal health care, which may not be the best thing. But competition, I think, and patient choice and collaboration, I think, should win the day and, and not consolidation. That's what we need to, I think, look on the regulatory side. The regulatory CMS is, I think, probably just easier for them if they have to just deal with one, one way and one way to do it, and that's consolidation. And the payment models, I think, should be risk adjusted for those historically marginalized uh, uh, and more potentially more expensive to take care of those populations. And, and I think uh, government needs to support practices both in the rural and the urban environment where things work well and not try and force uh, one way for uh, both urban and, and rural and small and big. Yeah, I think that's a great point. There's so much diversity that we appreciate in our patient populations and how we care for people. And there's not always a one-fits-all approach to things. God is right that you do have to spend some time and probably some revenue on trying to influence the regulatory agencies. I can remember one um, um, issue in particular. Um, we the CMS had decided that they were going to get rid of the 29823 code for arthroscopy. Um, and the rationale behind it was that they had decided that the shoulder was actually just one anatomical area. It did not consist of the sternoclavicular joint, the acromioclavicular joint, the glenohumeral joint, the subacromial space, the scapulothoracic joint. It was just all one cavity. And as a result, they would only allow one code, no matter what you do. That That was their rationale. Um, and so we and met with them twice. The first time, I didn't think we had a prayer of getting anything changed. The second time we visited them, they actually took, they put the 29823 code back on for certain uh, cases that you would do with it, but they still did not um, give up the fact that they thought that the shoulder was just one cavity. And now um, we're sort of revisiting that 29823 thing again for the same reason. Um, so you do have to stay on the regulatory agencies too. It's not just it's not just the legis legislative people on the hill. Scott's right when it when the bill gets passed and it goes to the regulatory agencies to enforce it. Sometimes uh, they're the ones that change the rules and make the rules, and you can't lose sight of your regulatory uh, efforts um, in to the sole um, emphasis to the legislative side of things. You got to look at both sides. That's that's absolutely true. So is there hope for us? Well, <laughs> I, I always say, here's the thing that they can never change. Okay. And I, the one thing I was going to say is our biggest advocate is our patients. Yeah. And don't be bashful to use your exam room as a way to make arguments that are good for your patients that you're staring at and, and taking care of patients. Don't ever forget that. Um, and the one thing that they can never take away from us is the fact that we're the doctor and they're the patient. Um, that can never be taken away. So I think what we focus on and what we, we, we focus on currently and what we need to focus on is everything that we advocate for allows us to provide the best quality care to our patients that they deserve and they want 
And that's what we're advocating for. And as long as we make that argument in that way, uh, I think we always have a chance. Yeah, I, I agree with Jerry 100%. There, there are some Congress people on, on Capitol Hill that, you know, if you're coming as a doctor, representing doctors, you're probably not thought as being underprivileged or and such. And so, you know, having a concise message about our patients, patient stories, it's not about us. We should remember that it's about helping helping our patients and in some areas of medicine if you work in an academic center and you're just paid an academic salary or if you're in the military you think well this doesn't benefit me well well it does because uh, for example this past year based upon our academy association we've gotten more money for orthopedic research dollars from the from the nih and that we've been able to increase that and if you look across the board of what's the biggest cause of lost work, which is expensive, right? That's, it's all musculoskeletal. Yeah. That's the biggest one. We spend 6% of, of our GNP on musculoskeletal issues, and that's a lot of money. And uh, you know, these are working, work, people working, uh, con, uh, contributing to society that are, that are not at work. And so we need to have the, the, the money, uh, research dollars to focus on that. And we have. And, and I, as, it, as I go back to what I said earlier, you know, the anesthesiologists are, are giving more than, than we are. But, you know, we're no, number two among the, the medical packs, as I said, as I said earlier, ahead of the AMA. So we're, we're doing a, a pretty good job. And, and I think we can do even better. The, the ASCS, we have 19 percent of our members are contributing to the pack, which is actually pretty good. That's it's actually high up there among the different societies. The hypnea is, is much less. But I think a goal that we should have as the ASES is, and we do, we plan on this at every annual meeting to have uh, some uh, presentation on 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 the, on the pack and how we can contribute to that. I think over the next couple of years we should be able to get up to thirty percent, which actually be, sounds low, but it's actually very high for our organization. I think we can we can get there. And uh, one thing that the academy has done is that you start at the, um, the advisors circle. Um, as an individual, you can give up to five thousand uh, dollars to a pack, um, but a corporation, LLC, and Rothman Rothman uh, has done a fantastic job of being part of that advisor circle, um, which is an LLC or corporation. It's unlimited. That's soft soft dollars, but we need soft dollars to you know, keep the lights on and run the office and, and pay salaries and stuff uh, in, in in DC, and so that's been fantastic. And, and the ASCS is part of that also. We, we contribute about 25, I think around $25,000 a year uh, in these soft dollars uh, to the advisor circle. And from that advisor circle, one of those has a seat on the uh, PAC, executive committee of the PAC uh, to bring those issues. So I, I think there's a lot of good things that we're doing and I think it's gonna get better personally. I just love that you said, you know, it's like it's we're doctors advocating for patients. We're not doctors advocating for doctors. And, and that's, a, I think, an important thing to remember. But go ahead, Dr. Williams. But what I was going to say is Scott's right from medical pack perspective. We're always the academy is always number one or number two. It goes back and forth between us and the anesthesiologist. The big thing that drives the anesthesiology money is scope of scope of practice. Uh, the CRNAs and the anesthesiologist um, sort of. They're at each other's throats sometimes. And the bottom line is that's a big issue for them. And that's what drives their money. Um, if you think about it, though, if you look at what anesthesiologists make in comparison to what orthopedic surgeons make, we ought to be number one by a mile. 
to be perfectly honest with you. Um, so I, I'm happy that ASCS is at 19% and the Academy's at 30, but I'd be more happy if the ASCS was at 38% and the Academy was at 60. Um, if we had that kind of contribution, uh, we wouldn't be known even better. We're known, yeah. we're known on the Hill now because we make a lot of noise and we make a lot of noise in a very organized way. We, always, we don't show up with a shotgun. We, we show <laughs> up with very accurate firearms. And we, we have the same message and we shoot for the same target every single time. They know when we come back, they know what they're going to hear. And when they know that we're going to pound them on it. And uh, that's, what, that's why we do what we do with what I considered, if you consider it compared to other medical packs, we're great. But if you compare it to the people we're really fighting against, insurance companies, hospital associations, trial lawyers, we're, we're coming to a, a gunfight with a knife. We, we need more ammo. Um, and we got tons of firepower. I mean, nobody is smarter than the people that we bring to the Hill and the people that we have in our midst that are involved in advocacy, Scott, Ted Schlegel before him, we've got really smart, capable people. And if, you know, if we could get just a little bit more support, we could have even a better effect. And we do a good job. I agree with Scott. We do a very good job, uh, but we could do a lot better. Um, and, you know, this is not going to change. This advocacy the way things work in advocacy and the way things work um, in legislation and the, and the way care is delivered, it's never going to change for the better. Uh, so we just need to keep fighting. And then I'd just like to emphasize a number that Scott gave a little minute ago. It's, it's a number that's kind of hard to get your, your arms around. So this was pre-COVID. Uh, the amount of money spent in the United States on health care was $17 trillion a year. A third of that. Yeah. A third of $17 trillion a year was spent in musculoskeletal medicine. So, and, you know, if you combine that with the fact that orthopedic surgeons, I think, still had the highest um, reimbursement of any specialty in medicine. So not only do the legislators not like us, some of our colleagues in other fields of medicine don't like us that much. So the bottom line is we have big bullseyes on our back. We have to realize that we got to fight every single day for our patients and we got to never get sick of it. Yeah, and it's hard to get sick of. I mean, it's easy to get sick of. <laughs> I mean, you know. I, I agree. Yeah. One more thing that I, I realize I've been a member of the ASES for, for a while, and I really think that um, the uh, PAC committee or, or the PAC contributing to the PAC is a very, very key aspect. I mean, when I was chair of the membership committee, I think that was important, you know, the new members were getting in. But I think along with that, I think having a strong presence in the academy pack, uh, which we have. And uh, I think back, to, I think a couple of years ago at the BOS meeting, uh, we got 100% participation from BOS members, but it was because, <laughs> I think Kevin Plancher was the president, and I guess it was two years ago, um, so everybody pick up their phone and dial, you know, text 41444 and type in AOS and give $25. And uh, we should probably do that at our annual meeting at the ASES. I mean, just, it's easy to do. But one thing that also that, that, uh, that uh, politicians look at is, is percent participation. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it, yeah, we were behind anesthesiologists, as Jerry said, they're, they're a one-trick pony. They just concerned about the CRNAs. 
is if they see that that we have you know over 30 percent participation if ases can get it's hard to get above 50 in any of these but if you know if at the annual meeting we just say pull out your phone and give 25 dollars everybody right now that would give the percentage of participation even though it's a small number that still is a powerful message that that is sent to capitol hill absolutely i know our time's going to wrap up here pretty soon but i i wanted to you know ask if you guys kind of had sort of parting words of what you think the most important role of the political advocacy committee is for ASES members and kind of what they should take away of knowing this committee is doing for them and, and why it's so important. I can maybe start is one thing I didn't want to forget to mention is Mark Frankel uh, has funded an award. It's the, uh, it's the Healthcare Policy Award. They call it the Frankel Award. It just started in the, this year's, you know, Melissa, we're funding three uh, new members to, uh, yes. to go to the LSC and to, as part of it, they have to write, do a project on advocacy. And I think, I think those reports that we'll give at each and at end of each annual meeting, I think are very important. And Claude Jarrett is working on the, on the prior authorization study, uh, from the, from the ASC's perspective, which is great. Um, but, I, but I think, I think having the word out there is, uh, knowing what's going on Capitol Hill and giving a message back to our members and encouraging them to, to uh, contribute. So from my perspective, um, I think Scott, I, we're both this way, I know, but I, I, know, I know Scott knows that I am. Um, I really think that your focus needs to be on your patients. And if you really want to guarantee or do the best you can to guarantee that you will be able to take care of your patients in the way that you see fit at the end of your career, and you're now just starting, um, then it really is incumbent upon you to get involved either financially or with time and effort or both because um, nobody is going to look out for our patients like we do. Our patients, quite frankly, don't know the issues well enough to be able to speak for themselves unless we help them. Uh, we're the ones who understand how to take care of patients and how to how to take care of musculoskeletal injuries and musculoskeletal problems. And therefore, it's incumbent upon us to make sure that the people who are making laws and uh, determining the, the environment in which we have to take care of our patients understand uh, what the important issues are and what the effect of their uh, decisions will be on our patients. Um, and for me, that's that's really the main reason why I became really involved in advocacy because it became clear to me very early that really our patients were not going to have any opportunity to affect their outcome uh, from the standpoint of legislation and regulation without us. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just think it's important and it's, it's frustrating. I mean, you know, we're people that like, you know, we're, we're end result people, right? We like to go to the operating, oh, yeah. do something, see the result right away. The patient's home in three months feeling great and you're on to your next patient. Politics doesn't work that way. Um, you know, you get small victories here and there. You get some victories that are just not defeats. Um, but you just have to keep going at it and keep coming stronger and stronger because um, it's always going to be us. It's going to be responsible for making sure that this happens in a way that's good for patients. And, you know, like the guy said to me, the guy who was the health policy expert, somebody's got to look out for the patients. He's right. And that's us. Yeah. Okay. And so it'll always be us. And we should never forget it. 
Absolutely. Uh, no, I've learned a ton having been on the political advocacy committee. Um, you know, I, I got interested too. I, you know, I want to take the best care of my patients I can and learning about um, just the ins and outs of how much more goes into that than what I do in the office every day has been really enlightening. And I'm so appreciative of you know, all the people that have gone before me and, and put in their time and their energy and their dollars to kind of get us to where we are today. And Clearly, it's always going to be, uh, you know, something we have to keep doing. But I don't know if you guys have any final parting words for our our members from the advocacy committee and and the and the world of political advocacy. I think Jerry hit around the head. It's really about taking care of the patients. If you think about prior authorization, um, AMA, you know, studied this, and you know, members presented over, I think, over thirty percent adverse events to patients related to, to delayed um, yeah. pre-authorization. That's direct patient care. So these are things that are very tangible and, and, and we can totally relate to. And that's what we need to stay, stay on top of this and contribute, as Jerry said earlier, at the state level, and then as your society, because we all, we all collaborate. That's what we need to do uh, as we go to Capitol Hill. So thank you for tonight. And I, you know, yeah. I haven't read this book yet, but I love the title and I'm going to use it as a sort of a, rallying cry for us. Mike Pompeo's got a book out that's called Never Give In. I think that's perfect. That's a perfect sentiment uh, for the way we should look at advocacy in orthopedic surgery in general and ASCS in particular. Never give in. Don't give an inch. Um, make sure you, you stand tall uh, and go toe-to-toe -to -toe with them because it's our responsibility. I love Absolutely. it. Absolutely. That's awesome. Right. Well, thank you both so much for joining us tonight. We really appreciate it. And thank you to Rachel and Pete for letting us kind of take over and share some stuff about advocacy with the membership. I uh, hope you guys have a great night.